Welcome to the 15th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg of Blue Frontier and my co-host Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. Well, hello, everyone. Hi there, Vicki. So, Vicki, what do we know about today's guest, our, our mutual friend, Richard Charter? Richard, he is a longtime specialist on ocean protection issues. As co-chair of the National Outer Continental Shelf, Richard was involved in winning and maintaining a 27-year congressional moratorium on offshore oil and gas leasing along the United States West Coast, the Atlantic Coast, Florida's Gulf Coast, as well as in Alaska's Bristol Bay. Richard has also helped lead the fight against ongoing attempts to reopen these waters to drilling since the Obama administration. Okay, and along with his work on the Outer Continental Shelf Coalition, Richard's a past Peter Benchley Ocean Award winner, have to mention that. Also helped bring about the creation of the Gulf of the Farallones, Cordell Bank, Channel Islands, and Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuaries here in California. So welcome aboard, Richard. How'd you get into the oceans? How'd you grow up and where to take you down to the shoreline? Well, thank you for having me today. And uh, this is basically a family thing, I think, my involvement with the ocean. My father was absolutely fascinated with abalone at a time uh, when I was in my early childhood when you could go out and rock pick abalone on the California coast without diving. And they were about the size of dinner plates. And I think the daily limit per person was 10 or 12. And uh, I would go camping with him along the Sonoma coast. And I would always, when I was too young to go after abalone, I got parked in the tide pools. So I fell in love with the intertidal life and uh, what goes on in the estuaries. I was really into science at a very early age. So I guess I grew up respecting nature in that way where you grow your own food. And we had a small 30-acre truck garden farm out on Bailey Road in the Concord area before it was developed. And uh, it was a matter of tomatoes or wheat or walnuts uh, at any given time. And so I kind of grew up really tied to nature in a way that uh, a lot of kids don't get to have happen today. And I became a poster designer during the 60s. I had posters uh, all over the world. And uh, I started this company called the Graphics Community. I was doing a lot of work for IBM and Memorex, the early Silicon Valley companies in San Jose. And I started tithing a small amount of my work to progressive political candidates and conservation causes. In 1969, we had a small spill down the coast in Santa Barbara when the Union oil blowout occurred and 1969, the Santa Barbara oil spill was one of the defining issues of the growing environmental movement, same year that a river caught fire in Cleveland, Ohio. Was, was that uh, one of the big moments for you? Or Well, it was a big moment for everyone because I think folks realized that what we had been told about offshore drilling, don't worry, be happy, it can't hurt anything. And the next thing we knew, we had this vast swath of the California coast covered with oil, very tarry, black, gooey oil, piles of dead animals on the beaches. And the only technology available to try to respond to it was basically a straw that would be spread on the oil that raked into piles. So even Richard Nixon became an environmentalist at that point. He came out with his Secretary of Interior at the time, Wally Hickel, came out to Santa Barbara 
and created the first ban on offshore drilling right off the city of Santa Barbara called the Hickle Preserve, permanently protected from offshore drilling, which is still there today. So I think that set the stage for the rest of the movement to protect the rest of the California coast from offshore drilling is California's never forgot what happened in Santa Barbara. And, and how did you get involved at that point? Uh, I was already doing environmental work on other issues, but uh, certainly that, and as you mentioned, the Cuyahoga River caught fire up in Ohio. And I, I've always, for some reason, I tend to be a year or two out ahead of social change. In other words, when there's going to be a paradigm shift in society, I seem to intuitively know that it's coming and, and adapt ahead of time. So uh, I shifted more then to doing environmental public relations, as I called it, or environmental communications right around that time. Richard, you have been absolutely instrumental in the designation of the California National Marine Sanctuaries. And with that, there has been the um, restrictions on oil and gas. Can you tell us how that all integrated with your earlier days and then your champion of no offshore oil development along the Californian western coast? Well, I get blamed or credited, depending on which side you're on, for a lot of things that were actually done by millions of other people. But I have learned to serve as sort of a nervous system synapse, kind of the crossing point for communication about things. And so I had actually quit uh, the whole issue of environment after fighting a large dam and working on forestry issues. I was living on the Sonoma coast peacefully and uh, ignoring the environment as much as I could and doing silkscreen glass, layers of glass with mirror behind it that I was selling in craft fairs when uh, then Interior Secretary Cecil Andrus, who worked for Jimmy Carter, announced that they were going to put offshore drilling right in front of where I lived. And I thought, I can't ignore this. Uh, nobody knows about it. There was actually a public hearing coming up, and it made a little tiny blurb in the local newspaper. So I went to a printer friend of mine in uh, a nearby town, and I said, look, can we do some flyers to let people know about this hearing? And I remember they said, offshore drilling on the Sonoma-Mendocino coast, they've got to be kidding, was the headline. And it had people write to Cecil Andrus and or go to this hearing. And the printer was printing these two up on an eight and a half by 11 sheet. This was before the internet. And he went out to his parking lot and got to talking to somebody and left the press running. So instead of running 5,000, he ran about 15,000, which when cut in half was 30,000 flyers, which a number of us put on every store counter on the entire North Coast. And what, what came of that when it was time for the hearing? Well, we needed a name, first of all, to put on the, you can't just put on a flyer and say it's from, you know, Joe Smith. So we invented the name Friends of the Sonoma Mendocino Coast, which we uh, had to shorten to Friends of the Coast. And we got uh, an attorney showed up unannounced and said he could get us nonprofit status, which he did. And by the time uh, this whole thing escalated through a hearing and a huge comment period, Cecil Andrus eventually had to go, you know, he was an environmentalist, but he had to go to Jimmy Carter uh, and he had to say, 
you can't do this on the Sonoma coast. The congressional representatives are against it of both parties. The people are up in arms. The fishermen won't be hearing of it. And so Jimmy Carter actually withdrew the whole plan. And uh, as has been said, I think, by David Brower and others, in the environmental movement, you have to be careful because uh, all of your victories are temporary and all of your losses are permanent. But we thought we'd won. Richard, the, um, the creation of the Gulf of the Farallones, Cordell Bank, Channel Islands, the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, they were all well connected with this concept of preventing offshore oil development. Can you talk about that relationship and, that, and how that came about? Well, for the localities, I was working for a couple dozen cities and counties by this time. And their goal, of course, always was to have permanent protection from offshore drilling. There are only a couple of mechanisms in the federal government that allow permanent protection from offshore drilling. And the most attractive one is the creation of a national marine sanctuary. So around 1980, uh, we began looking at the Channel Islands, Monterey Bay, and the Farallon Islands as the locus for national marine sanctuaries where we would have permanent protection in the surrounding waters. We then went ahead and created what is now the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary, then the Farallon Islands National Marine Sanctuary, and we created the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary with, of course, huge support from every local government, most of the fishermen, uh, millions, literally millions of citizens. So in the beginning of the 80s, we had gained permanent protection for these small areas around the Farallons and around the Channel Islands. It took until the Exxon Valdez oil spill, really, uh, until 1994, as a follow-up to that embarrassing event, we did get a Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary uh, Congressman, then chair of the House Budget Committee, Leon Panetta, put a much larger Monterey Bay sanctuary onto the Hurricane Andrew Relief Act. South Florida had blown flat in a hurricane and they needed money. And there were a and lot of Republic. That was in 1992. Right. 92, that had happened. And by 94, we got a marine sanctuary extending from Cambria up to co-terminus with the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary. So that really left about, oh, I would say one quarter, between a quarter and a third of the California coast permanently protected from offshore drilling in a National Marine Sanctuary complex. However, and in between, we had added in a very important offshore bank called Cordell Bank. So we had pretty much central and northern California from Cambria north uh, nailed down and an area around the Channel Islands. However, Donald Trump, all these years later, when he became the president, his secretary of interior, which was Ryan Zinke, instituted a review of the uh, existing National Marine Sanctuaries, all of them, particularly any amendments to them that have been created by President Obama. And uh, President Obama had expanded the Greater Farallon Sanctuary, and he had added a little uh, very important offshore spire um, called Davidson Seamount. He had added that to the Monterey Sanctuary. So the Secretary of Commerce, uh, Wilbur Ross, was charged by Donald Trump with, quote, a review of our National Marine Sanctuaries. And that's still I do going remember on. that, yes. We have not heard any outcome 
we don't know uh, if or when or what might be done there, but that's still an open question. So uh, the question you ask, is our National Marine Sanctuaries sacrosanct and permanently protected? The answer is we hope so, and we hope that that doesn't end with Donald Trump. How do you compare the Trump error with the other fights you've been in on offshore oil? And, and also, how do you compare the public reaction, the public mobilization? As soon as Trump came into office, he announced a uh, what he called America First Energy Policy, which involved offshore drilling uh, without consideration of environmental issues, offshore drilling on about 90% of the federal outer continental shelf, reversing everything that Obama had ever done. Uh, and uh, with no moratorium, he could drill anywhere he wanted. And so he released this new five-year offshore drilling plan off of California, there are six pending offshore oil and gas lease sales uh, in the next five years. He also was opening up the South Atlantic, and he was also opening up the uh, protected area that's uh, off the Gulf Coast of Florida. So we began to get really worried, and uh, local governments got very involved again, not only in California, but along the Atlantic coast and uh, we still have permanent protection for Bristol Bay in Alaska, which is not a national marine sanctuary. It was uh, protected by Obama under what's called Section 12 of the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. But pretty much everything except our national marine sanctuaries and Bristol Bay, the richest salmon fishery on the planet, uh, sockeye salmon fishery on the planet in, in Alaska, everything else was going to be opened by Trump. And he made a really big deal about this and everybody became properly exercised. So 100 plus uh, local communities on the Atlantic coast passed resolutions opposing it. Seismic survey companies lined up to start doing the boom, boom ships, the seismic surveys, which are very destructive. And of course, the precursor activity for offshore leasing tells the companies where they want to drill. That all started on the South Atlantic coast. And then a funny thing happened, uh, which is that as the presidential election started to get closer, and as various major media outlets in Florida and various uh, folks in, like Marco Rubio in the Senate became concerned about Florida as a tipping point for the outcome of the presidential election, which of course it's been that before, President Trump came out and recently announced that he was creating his own dozen-year or so moratorium protecting not only Florida's Gulf Coast, but also Florida's Atlantic Coast, also Georgia, also South Carolina. And after clamoring from North Carolina, he added North Carolina. And finally, after the military went to him about certain uh, carrier battle group needs at uh, Hampton Roads off of Virginia, he added a dozen-year moratorium off the coast of Virginia. This is the most, and he, and he declared himself an environmentalist, even as he was saying in Virginia that he could reverse this anytime he wanted to. So did you, in any of your years of working on offshore oil, ever think that it could become a, a crucial issue in, in a swing state like Florida in a presidential election? Florida as a swing state, as a tipping state for the outcome of a presidential election, if you look at it, it was perfectly teed up this year so that offshore drilling, which we knew Floridians opposed because they voted against it in state waters, 
just a year ago, overwhelmingly rejected it in state waters off of Florida, the voters did. You knew what people believed in Florida. Obviously, the Trump campaign campaign knew that people in Florida opposed it. So he was just seeing his poll ratings slipping and thinking he could perhaps buy the support of the voters of Florida and uh, get a second term as president. We The jury's still out on that because, as I say, I don't think most people miss the fact that it was a threat that he himself had generated in the first place. But oil sequestered by nature on the Intercontinental Shelf means that that is not going to contribute to climate change. When you look for it, when you drill for it, when you extract it, when you refine it, when you pump uh, pump it into a gasoline-powered automobile or run a factory, hydrocarbon fuels are the major contributor, as everybody now knows, to climate warming or climate chaos, as we've become calling it this year. And uh, it, to me, has taken about 30 years to convey that message to the public in the way that's finally happening this year. We know if there's a Biden-Harris administration, there's going to be a major climate initiative. And we want to make sure that our public seas and our coastlines are part of it. I'm very heartened by several things. I'm very encouraged by the fact that particularly local governments and in most states also on the coast, the state governments uh, and their elected officials in Congress and the Senate all realize that a clean coast economy is one of the most important facets for any region to have. You can't pollute your coast and keep your economy in one piece. That's good. That revelation took a while to sink in, but now it's absolutely, I think, accepted fact, and nobody's questioning that, not even the President of the United States, it seems. The other thing that's encouraging to me is that climate, which, of course, Jimmy Carter started out talking about a carbon tax, which I knew we were in trouble as soon as the word tax crept in there. People need to view the impacts of fossil fuels, uh, whether they come from the ocean or fracking on land. Fossil fuels are a major the major contributor, really, to climate chaos. And uh, climate is, uh, well, uh, an election issue this year. It's never been before. So there's always the possibility that we will get smart in time, barely in time. Human beings are a little late on the uptake and tend to react when the level of the water passes their nose. But I think we're going to see major change. I believe over time, the pendulum swings both ways to more environmental disaster and more environmental mayhem and rolling back. The Trump administration has now rolled back 100 very critical environmental regulations, many of them since the beginning of the pandemic, thinking nobody would notice. I think a lot of this can be put back together. It really takes a federal administration two terms to do permanent damage. And if this one uh, currently, the Trump administration is limited to one term, I think a lot of things can be fixed. A lot, Not everything, but a lot of things can be repaired in terms of public policy. The voting public has gotten smarter about their own connection to the environment, whether they're in agriculture or fisheries or whatever people do for a living. A healthy environment is necessary to underpin a healthy economy. And so that's encouraging to me, very much so. The place where I live uh, is a place I fell in love with as a small child and was I had to wait till uh, 
about 1976 to be able to get here and they were just little crackerjack cottages that were fishermen's shacks and uh, been here ever since. Um, when I would work in Washington DC for three or four months of the year and it was hot and humid and the streets were melting from the heat and I would come home to the fog in the summer, it was we called it outdoor air conditioning. It is one of the most beautiful places on the planet and uh, it it recharges me. All I have to do is walk out the door and uh, walk on the beach. And I remember why I came. Uh, I remember what I was doing in Washington. I remember why I work on what I work on. So to me, um, where a person lives is very important. It doesn't have to be on the beach, but wherever, whatever makes your heart sing, that's where you want to live. Thank you, Richard. Richard, it was a pleasure, as always, to spend some time with you. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here buddy! Sparky! There you are, good boy, Sparky!